This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. You heard about what happened over the weekend. Of course, the Prime Minister uh, was in Peru for the Summit of the Americas, had to do an abrupt U-turn, come on back and meet with the premiers of B.C. and Alberta. Uh, Of course, uh, the Prime Minister says the pipeline's going. B.C. says no. Uh, They met over the course of the weekend. It looks like what's going to happen out of this is uh, Prime Minister Trudeau will basically cover the cost of any sort of delay, guaranteeing Kinder Morgan that there will be no delays. Uh, Kinder Morgan, of course, uh, last week said uh, they don't like the feeling going into all of this. They're not they're not confident that uh, there won't be backlash and, and, and something stopping this. And they said, if we don't get this cleared up by the 31st of May, we're out. So it looks now like the government has basically said, we'll cover the cost of anything that uh, goes wrong. Here's a couple of clips. The first one from the B.C. Premier. We don't know with clarity what the the impact of diluted bitumen is in a marine environment. And uh, that's one of the gaps that we wanted to fill through science. There were a host of others. And uh, Minister Heyman had been working on that with officials uh, in Victoria and in Ottawa. And that uh, slowed down recently, but it appears to be back on track. And from a leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, Andrew Scheer. Justin Trudeau has let Canadian workers down once again. It's time for Justin Trudeau and his government to take this seriously and to show us a plan to get Trans Mountain built. All right, let's bring in George Hoberg. He's with the School of Public Policy and Global Affairs, University of British Columbia, and with us now. George, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Hi there. So what's different now than prior to the weekend? I mean, prior to the weekend, the PM said it's going through. BC said, no, we're at the same place here. What's different? I think it is really a game changer, the fact that the federal government and the government of Alberta have both uh, said they're willing to back the pipeline financially. Uh, That is a a significant change. What it does really, it takes away part of the environmental resistance strategy that basically thought that if you could just keep delaying the pipeline as long as possible, the proponent Kinder Morgan would pack up and eventually go home out of frustration. But with the governments getting on board and so-called de-risking the uh, pipeline, uh, that strategy doesn't really work anymore. Uh, Many said that the prime minister should have had these discussions with the two premiers long before now and long before uh, an ultimatum from Kinder Morgan. Would that have made any difference here? Uh, Now it seems we're paying to cover these uh, this cost where we didn't in the past. How come? You know, I've been saying I've been one of those people who's been saying Trudeau has been way too late to step up. Uh, But I don't actually think it would have made much of a difference. Uh, if he'd done it earlier, it, it, the circumstances would not have changed. Uh, the government of British Columbia really is uh, resolutely opposed to the pipeline, as are uh, many British Columbians. And uh, it's an issue that uh, it's up to the prime minister to deal with. And frankly, I actually thought he did a pretty good job yesterday sticking to his guns and talking about how important it is to uh, unify Canada um, and, and act like we're a real country. So uh, what options does BC have now? Uh, What British Columbia is going to do is try to push forward their jurisdiction over the environment uh, with this so-called reference case, which is a hypothetical case asking the courts if BC has constitutional jurisdiction to regulate diluted bitumen in the way that they're proposing. Uh, That will delay the process further. I actually think what's more important and going to be more telling, is the existing court cases that are currently in court were awaiting rulings uh, in the federal courts about 
uh, Trudeau's decision to approve Kinder Morgan, and then to pro- provincial courts about the previous Premier Christy Clark's decision to approve the environmental certificate for it. Both those things are subject to serious judicial challenges, and I think the the most likely uh, course for victory for the op- opponents is if those court cases are successful in overturning the, the permit issued by the federal government. And I, I know we can't read tea leaves here, but how strong are these cases? What are the chances uh, of, of them being successful? Uh, I can't. We can't read tea leaves. Uh, there are serious issues. Uh, the most serious issue is whether or not, in a case like this, if uh, significant First Nations who are who bear a lot of the risk are resolutely opposed, and every offer of financial assistance and accommodation you made to them are rejected because they just don't want the project. Whether uh, that kind of um, opposition uh, can be overcome uh, by the government through the, the the way they've consulted with First Nations, and and that's something that uh, Canada really faces a difficult test in reconciling. Uh, you know, the, the colonial title that we've developed uh, since we've settled the country with the, that that existed for um, millennia uh, in First Nations here on the coast. Prime Minister, the Prime Minister said yesterday that he has uh, conferred with Indigenous communities, that he, there's 43 on board, 33 within uh, B.C. itself. Um, how, how do you how do you how do you balance this, especially when some are on board, some aren't on board? Um, you know, this, most some will say the indigenous community is not on board. He says it is. Yeah, well, let's let's look at what the indigenous folks are actually saying. I'd encourage you to tune in to the noon Pacific time press conference by the Union of BC Indian Chiefs. Um, but what else is going on when they say forty three? With those 43 are of First Nations who have signed impact benefit agreements. That means that they've agreed with Kinder Morgan if the pipeline goes forward, that that community receives money from the, uh, the company. That doesn't mean that they necessarily support the pipeline. Uh, some, some First Nations do, but I don't think that's anywhere near a majority. And I just like to point, you know, ask you to look, where are the First Nations who are most opposed? Those in the lower mainland who are the ones whose uh, cultures are, would be most threatened by a major oil spill. What is the concern with uh, the oil spill, a spill in regard to bitumen? Many have talked about research hasn't been done there as to what happens when this stuff hits the water. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, there's just diluted bitumen hasn't been around for that long. And uh, we we don't have a lot of information about how it behaves uh, in water. There was actually a big dispute at the National Energy Board about whether it floats or it sinks. So if things are that uncertain, the government of British Columbia says we ought to do more research on it. So that's one of the big concerns. The other uh, the concern we've talked about is the First Nations rights. And to me, the, the biggest one is really around climate change and what kind of country Canada is. What Trudeau's decision does is essentially doubles down on the oil sand sector as the fundamental driver of the Canadian economy. And that creates real tensions if Canada is actually planning to be a responsible actor uh, uh, globally uh, in reducing climate change. Uh, National Post did a big article prior to uh, the weekend uh, in regard to the amount of coal that Vancouver exports. It is the largest coal port in North America. Can you pretend to be the social conscience of the country and still do that? Certainly not. It is absurd that uh, the province of British Columbia allows coal exports out of you. know, we, we ban uh, the use of coal for electricity generation in the province, but we happily uh, 
um, export uh, American coal out of our jurisdiction. And I know that the First Nations and uh, environmental groups in the Lower Mainland are, are working hard to fight that. The challenges of the NDP government is quite sympathetic to uh, the labor unions and workers uh, in the coal industry. I guess the obvious question from the rest of Canada is how can BC let that go to market, but they're not letting Alberta put their goods to market, That's especially especially yeah. when coal's even dirtier than what Alberta has. That's a fair question. And uh, what the, the government of BC would say, so that's if you look at it from the climate lens, you're absolutely right. In terms of the threat to the BC environment, uh, an oil spill would be a much bigger issue than a, a coal spill. Uh, but again, isn't the climate issue driving? Isn't it the, isn't it the, the centerpiece of all of this? Uh, to me, it is. Uh, if you look at the rhetoric of the government of British Columbia, uh, it's certainly not. Uh, they're mostly focused on protecting our coast. So what does what does guaranteeing Kinder Morgan that this will go through, obviously a check uh, of some sort, wh- how does that solve all of these other problems? Uh, it doesn't actually at all. It just makes it more likely, well, it makes it less likely that the company is going to pack up and walk home out of frustration. It doesn't address the legal issues, and it doesn't address the safety of diluted bitumen, and it doesn't address uh, Canada's future uh, in a a clean energy world uh, when we're trying to continue to promote the export of dirty energy. Do you think we were going to get here eventually? And by that, I mean offering Kinder Morgan money. And why would we have not done this sooner? Uh, That's the sort of thing that we used to do. We being governments used to give companies like that money back in the 1950s to 1980s. And we had a different idea of how uh, the government supported the economy. But since we entered the so-called neoliberal era, uh, we don't do that very often. To be honest, I've been watching this stuff for uh, 10, 12 years, and it never occurred to me that the, the government of Alberta or uh, the government of Canada would offer to put money into one of these pipelines to solve that problem. Uh, how ironic is it that we have two Western provinces, two Western neighbors fighting with each other and both have NDP governments? Where's the leadership there? Uh, it goes to show you that party ideology is much less important than what drives your economy. Uh, and in Alberta, you can't avoid the fact that oil drives the economy. In British Columbia, our economy is much more tied up with uh, natural beauty, and it, make, it, it just puts them uh, in, a, in a continental divide over this issue. Where do you think this is going? Where, uh, I mean, now that uh, obviously negotiations are, have started with Kinder Morgan to, uh, to cover a- any sort of expenses or, or shareholder jitters, what happens now? Yeah, so there's multiple things to look at. The first in the very short term is that noon press conference by opposition leaders in British Columbia. Uh, the second is what happens with those negotiations with Kinder Morgan. There's no guarantee that the federal government will come to an agreement, but uh, I, I take it from yesterday that they really, really want to, so maybe they will. And most importantly, look for the court cases. Those rulings could come down any day or in a couple of months from now. We're not really sure, but that's really going to have the biggest impact on how this case evolves. Uh, What about the significance of Prime Minister Trudeau coming back from uh, his summit and and sort of doing a a U-turn to come back to handle this and then back out again? Does this heighten discussions in any way? Does it really change much? Well, it, it does change things a lot because it really 
Just right. simply because Kinder Morgan now has financial guarantee that this will go through. It, well, I think the most important thing is that the Prime Minister of Canada is willing to use federal authority to push this through. And uh, Alberta didn't know that. The oil sand sector didn't know that. Kinder Morgan didn't know that. And his returning from Latin America... Uh, and having this meeting and saying what he said gives him that assurance. Again, prior to do all of this, he said it's going through, it's going through, it's going through. So the only difference here is is the financial agreement. Yeah, which is a big, that's yeah, a big thing. Yeah, He's yeah, putting yeah, his yeah, money uh, where Yeah, I don't mean to, and I don't mean to downplay that. Um, so what happens as this thing starts to move forward? How, wh- what will it look like as this, if this does this summer start to get built? Uh, it's going to be unpleasant out here. Uh, British Columbia will look like Standing Rock did. Uh, It's going to, there will be uh, barricades, there will be protests, there will be arrests. I fear there will be uh, violence. Uh, And I think it's going to be very unpleasant. That's why I was hoping that this could be resolved uh, without forcing the pipeline through in this way. One of the things that interests me is how it changes the dynamics of that, the people who are willing to go out and physically resist the pipeline. The fact that the federal government is going to be uh, putting money into it in one way or another. I, I, I don't know whether that would... I, I suspect that will increase opposition, not reduce it, especially among First Nations. Does everyone in B.C. agree with the Premier and his stand on this? Nope. Uh, the province actually is pretty evenly divided over the pipeline. Uh, the difference is the degree of intensity of that feeling. The people who are opposed to the pipeline tend to hold that opinion much more uh, strongly than those who are in favor of it. And if you look at the the percentage of British Columbians who are actually willing to get arrested uh, or risk arrest to stop the pipeline, it's surprisingly high. So that's why I predict a, a long, hot summer here in British Columbia. Uh, again, I have a hard time believing they're protesting this, but they're not protesting the coal going out. Um, they, they are protesting the coal going out. Why don't uh, we hear about that, though? Uh, I'll send you some links. Go to the Dogwood uh, BC site. Yeah, but are they making are they make, are they making as much noise about this as they are the pipeline? No, because it, it's a much uh, it, the, the coal goes through a, a much smaller area, British Columbia, right? Basically, just from White Rock to Vancouver, right? And uh, and it doesn't uh, risk First Nations rights in the same way that the pipeline does. What? That, that's, Sorry, that's go ahead. About the pipeline, the pipeline has become a proxy battle over climate change and indigenous rights in Canada in a way that the the coal port. Uh, never have. Right, right. So what will this do? What does this mean for the B.C. government, which I understand now is being propped up by the Green government, uh, the Green Party with three seats? Where does it leave all of that? Yeah, so if uh, as long as Horgan continues to fight to stop the pipeline, he can maintain Green support. Uh, but if he appears to capitulate, then that will be gone. And that, that's so far, so far he's doing that. It's quite an interesting situation politically, because even though they're at odds, both Notley and Horgan standing within their uh, provinces have significantly improved because they're fighting each other, right? I mean, mm. and, and so... But really, all, all Horgan has to... Up for BC has been very good for his uh, electoral fortunes. But all Horgan has to do here is just keep on the fight and make it look like whether the pipeline goes through or not, as long as he makes it look like he's still doing it and, you know, exercising every legal option that they have, it's good for him, no? Uh, that's correct. And when those legal options are exhausted with the pipeline... Uh, comes through anyway, uh, then uh, we've heard that the, the difference between the Greens and the BC will shift to other issues in the province like LNG or maybe that coal port you're talking about. Right. Um, and what about 
for Prime Minister Trudeau, what, how will he be favoured or not out there? Um, that's complicated. He's not, uh, people here are not a particularly big, the, the anti-pipeline people uh, now think of Justin Trudeau a lot like they think of Stephen Harper. So uh, he's not very popular in that crowd. But I do think that standing up strong for uh, the country and federal power will strongly uh, help him uh, with certain parts of the British Columbia constituency. Joe, Ho- uh, sorry, George Hoberg has been yeah. with his School of Public Policy and Global Affairs, uh, University of British Columbia. George, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you. Goodbye. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Former FBI Director James Comey releasing a book. It's out this week. Although, really, does anybody need to buy it? Because all the good stuff, it appears, and I use good stuff in air quotes, uh, has already pretty much been leaked, I'm thinking. Uh, He sat down for an interview last night, and uh, this is James Comey, sat down uh, for an interview and talked about all of this. Uh, I'm wondering, is this another fire and fury? Does this have... More legs than fire and fury. Uh, here's what uh, Comey had to say. Yeah. I think these are more words I never thought I'd utter about a president of the United States, but it's possible. That's stunning. You can't say for certain that the president of the United States is not compromised by the Russians. Yeah, it is stunning, and I wish I wasn't saying it, but it's just, it's the truth. All right, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert, principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. She is with us now. Alyssa, thank you for taking the time. How are you today? Oh, doing well, Scott. Thank you. Do we, I don't know, do we want to go into this? Do we want to, what's the difference between, let me ask you this first. What's the difference between this and Fire and Fury? Well, you know, this is a, this is a non-journalistic account. This is somebody who was head of the FBI who was, who is really privileged to inside information and handle the most sensitive of sensitive files. So the difference between Fire and Fury is that one was um, accessed by a journalist, written and reported on almost in the form of a, of a book. And, you know, Tommy has pretty darn quickly, if you ask me, uh, written a book about his experience at um, within the White House. So this is a true... This is not just a... Fire and Fury was more about someone who gained access. Uh, Comey's book... It was more, almost like a gossip column. Yeah, yeah. And I, I've been reading it, and I have to tell you, I mean, I don't know who edited it, but it is full of mistakes. I think they got this, that Fire and Fury out so fast just to get it off onto the shelves. But wow, well, what's this one going to be like? Well, Every other sentence know, missing? Be, this is the insider's <laughs> insider. I mean, this yeah. guy was head of the FBI. There wasn't anything that he did not know about. So, you know, that's what makes this particularly sort of, I don't know, high-level salacious. Is that an oxymoron? (laughs) It would be perfect here, if so. (laughs) Perfect. Um, So, will America, will we look at this book differently than Fire and Fury, or we just roll our eyes and go, oh my God, here we go again? Well, I don't know. I mean, that's interesting. I think the people who really don't like Trump are going to look at this as another point of view. And the people who do support Trump will just think, well, this is just much ado about nothing. Move on. 
So I think it's. Yeah, I, I think he will sell sell books. I mean, let, let's think about it. I mean, he just went on to George Stephanopoulos, and I have to say that Stephanopoulos did an excellent interview. Hmm. I mean, this is. This and is he's on Colbert. Like an, Isn't he on Colbert this week too? Mm, he's going to be doing the rounds, but yeah. carefully chosen rounds. Just not everybody. Not just you know the ABC affiliate somewhere in in Topeka, Kansas. No, he's picking and choosing his networks. Um, I don't think you're going to see him on Fox anytime soon, but maybe. I think that, you know, Stephanopoulos, this is almost like insider to insider. Stephanopoulos was chief of staff to Clinton. Mm. He knows he was a very, very young man at the time when he, when he was this, and he, when he held that position. But he was also privy to the way that the West Wing worked. So, and, and, and he understands the levels of government, and he understands um, who does what and what they're supposed to do and the powers that they have. So his questions were from a point of knowing. They were from a point of intelligence. Yeah. And it was almost like when he would say, this is stunning that you can't say definitively, uh, it's someone who knows better. Mm. And, but Comey, Comey was a cool character throughout that whole interview. Either he's you know, been well-trained as a, you know, through his, his career, and especially as head of the FBI. I also think that he was media-trained. But there was nothing that he did not expect, and there was nothing that he did not have an answer for. So there were two things. Either he's just that good, or in order to grant the interview, sometimes you, you know, you, listen, there are deals that are made. Yeah. So he may have been given the questions uh, beforehand knowing that there might be some latitude on George Stephanopoulos' behalf if he wanted to do a follow-up question, because that's just organically how an interview will go. But I think that if I was a betting woman, which I'm not often, but I would have to say that most of those questions must have been submitted prior to the interview. What do we know after this that we didn't already know or suspect? Not much else. I mean, really, this is just Comey speaking freely and not with the constraints of his former position. That's really what this is. And he's not really saying anything different that he hasn't already come out with and said. You know, he's, he's still being careful. He's still treading a very, very careful line. But I don't think that it is – I don't know. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't find anything that was that much more shocking than what I already knew. At what point do we say um, uh, little of this has to do with Trump and America? This mo- has more to do with Trump and his personal life, and it's you know it's that side that no one wants to see anyway. Well, you know, he did talk about uh, Trump allegedly with the prostitutes in Russia and, and what they were engaged in. And, and this story has been bantered around for a while. Nobody's really come forward and, and mentioned it in the media. Uh, as far as to what's happened and such. So what is the credibility of this story, and why is it in this book? Uh, Because it's salacious. You know, there really isn't any other way. And it's interesting, Scott, because, my goodness, had a story like that come out 10 years ago, you know, that president would have been gone done and gone. And it's amazing our tolerance for, yeah, well, that's what he did before. So uh, I really don't care what he does in his bedroom. So, you know, the shift in thinking about how something like this isn't uh, made more than to what it maybe should be to some people, I think it's astonishing. (laughs) Is this what Russia has on the president? Is it more about the prostitutes than it is anything else? You know, it could be. I think it's. I think it is a number of things. And you know, the Comey interview did allude to that there might have been some ob- ob- obstruction. But I have to tell you, remember that old Mackenzie King line: conscription, but not necessarily conscription. Hmm. That's kind of what this interview was like. 
Although he did have one really good line, and I have to say that, you know, I think that he must have said this in the rehearsal. Somebody said, okay, that's a good line. That's a sound bite. And it has been. So everything, every subsequent um, uh, interview that I have seen uh, that has come out, they've all quoted this line, which is, I don't think he's medically unfit to be president. I think he's morally unfit to be president. And when you look at what other pundits have to say, they look at this as sort of a lasting and lingering quote um, about this interview and, you know, maybe of the entire Comey book rollout. Now, remember, Scott, this is about selling books, Yeah. you know, at the end of the day. What about Comey's credibility? Where is it right now, especially when we do get salacious stories like this? And even if you talk about the, the quote you just mentioned, I mean, all of a sudden now we're questioning morals. Is that a slippery slope? Well, I think that, you know... Everything is about conjecture. You you know, Trump keeps throwing out, well, that's just fake news. This is fake news. That is fake news. But anything that he disagrees with, um, he considers to be fake news. So conjecture plays really well under the notion of fake news. You know, I would always counsel my clients, you know, don't go where you don't really know the answer. Don't tell people what you think you know. Tell people what you know you know. So, you know, conjecture is a very, very dangerous path to walk down. So unless you really know the details and know that you can talk about the details, you sort of have to do a little bit of a dance around it, which is what Comey did last night. Uh, Lots will say that he's uh, not a very vibrant guy. I guess that's the sort of guy you want running uh, the FBI. Well, exactly. You don't need a showman running the FBI. Exactly. What's in this for him? Obviously, he's there to sell books. But does he need to do that? Uh, Why is he doing this, do you think? Well, I think there's also an an element of clearing his name here. You know, he had a really rough run at the um, end, closer to the end of the election, to do with the Hillary emails. And then post that, when Trump allegedly asked him to, you know, be on his team and, you know, to drop certain cases, allegedly... So he has sort of been thrust into the media spotlight, some by his own volition and his own decision-making, and others by the issues that are swirling around him and that are, um, that are attached to him. So I'm looking at this as sort of a uh, personality revival tour. You know, this is who I am. I'm a straight-up FBI guy. I respected the, the office. I respected the department. And I really would just want people to see what a stand-up guy I am. How do you think the Democrats are going to play this? Um, obviously, there's you know, a, a love-hate relationship there with what he did prior to the election. And, and many said what, what he said in regard to the emails sealed the fate of Hillary Clinton. How are the Dems going to position this? You know, what's interesting, and I think they sort of have to be really careful, because every time the Dems sort of jump onto one of these narratives, whether it's about prostitutes, whether it's about, you know, um, collusion, it's it's sort of like more whining and nothing about their, you know, how they want to see things move forward. So I think they're going to let this narrative ride out the way it is. I mean, if they're asked for comment, obviously, you know, they'll have their set speaking uh, notes and their set key messages. But I think they're just going to take a very, very middle line and not jump too vociferously on any one narrative. Uh, Once you get uh, this personal about somebody, do you lack credibility? You mean Comey. Does Comey lack credibility? Yeah. I mean, even talking about the face and the orange, and I mean, it's that stuff we all know. Do we need to go there? Well, it's interesting. I think that he was just trying, he threw that in to kind of humanize himself because of the question that was asked, sort of, what did you think when you first met him? And he thought, well, 
you know, he... He looks uh, like a circus clown. Yeah, exactly. And he looks a little bit orange when I got there. But yeah. the funny thing that I thought was that he had, like, these little whites under his eyes, like someone who had been in a tanning bed. And I, I kind of found that interesting, to be quite honest. But aren't we getting to, you know, I mean, I'm starting to feel dirty now. Oh, yeah, yeah. You said you wanted to take a shower before talking with me. Not because of me, but because of the book. But, <laughs> nothing to do uh, with you. Nothing to do with me at all. But um, no, but you know what I'm feeling? I mean, at what point does this, does, do you start to get backlash from this? It's like, all right, we don't want to hear this crap anymore. Well, you know, we know what the guy's like. It's an interesting point because, you know, you talk about news fatigue. And that's kind of what this is. So some people may look at this as like, oh, my God, this is a tell-all book. And some people um, may look at it and goes, well, you know, same news, different day. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting that unless you are willing to, you know, cross that line, put your reputation on the line, and, you know, say the things definitively of what he thought, you know, he still thinks like an FBI guy. So, you know, you can take the guy out of the FBI, but you can't take the FBI out of the guy. So I think he still treads a very, very careful line. And he'll go like a little salacious to make maybe him seem a little bit more, I don't know, relatable to, uh, you know, middle America. But, you know, James Comey is who he is. He's an old FBI guy with a lot of secrets that he's not willing to spill. All right. Talk about Trump's reaction to this. And is this just typical of any situation surrounding Trump? And by that, I mean the base won't care if you're against him. If you hate him, you'll hate him more. If you like him, you'll like him more. I mean, uh, is this the exact same as any other other major incident that seems to surround Trump? Uh, That and the other question being his reaction to this. Does this 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 bombshell any different? No. You know, he responds to this the same way he responds to all of them. And um, I think it's totally what to be expected. And Comey says he doesn't read his tweets. I would have a very hard time believing that, to be quite honest. Well, really, you don't have to, because someone else will read them to you. Well, okay, so he's <laughs> like <laughs> like that. Yes, maybe he doesn't read them personally. He can't get away from them. No, you can't. So his reaction was kind of, you know, his reaction was every, everybody expected it to be, quite honestly. I think that he was reeling more from the lack of, um, triumph from his uh, the strikes in Syria that nobody really gave him the credit that was due and instead they were all you know swirling around about these other little tidbits of fake news mm. so I think that that really was the one that sort of got under his skin and then uh, one of his other tweets was when they were talking about Syria you know he, he called it at the end of it mission accomplished and yeah. you know people all over were like what yeah. what mission what what was accomplished and yeah. then he says well i think that people should use that more and let's get it out and let's use mission accomplished more i mean you know the man's thinking yeah really it, it defies anything to me that is of of you know something straight line rational you can tell he grew up in the television age, that's for sure. Uh, maybe it should be instead of mission complete uh, reaction, or sorry, mission accomplished, reaction accomplished. Because yeah, many well, are, many are saying many are saying there is no mission here, there is no plan, this is just a reaction to what he saw in the news that night. Well, not only that, but they, they tried to float some picture of them around a table with Pence and, you know, during this airstrike when we all knew that he was in Florida at that time and that Pence was in Peru at another conference. So, you know, talk about fake news. You know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's always well her finger at the media in the briefing sessions certainly had to walk that one back. 
Uh, he was quite quiet when it came to all the stormy uh, stuff and, and, and those allegations. Everybody was wondering why he wasn't shooting from the hip on Twitter there, yet he's talking about this. How come? What's the difference between Stormy Daniels and the prostitutes in Russia? Well, the prostitutes aren't talking and Stormy Daniels is, and she's a really credible um I want to say witness, but that's the wrong word. She's sort of a, she, she's quite credible when she was interviewed. And I think that, I think that he was afraid of her, to be quite honest. I mean, if you listen to her stories about him. So I, I think that, you know, it's interesting that, you know, the process, this is just hearsay, but here you have somebody who is going on camera and detailing what happened in a room with him. So what was he going to say about that? You know, he, she said she didn't like me. Well, how are you going to respond to that? <laughs> president of the United States. But that really doesn't make a difference to him. So I'm kind of surprised that he didn't. So again, these stories have taken off the Russian prostitute stories pretty much under the radar. You have to dig to get them. Obviously, now that the Comey book's out, there seems to be more reference to them. Is that damaging anyway? And damaging in any way is, is... even if Russia is holding this over his head, does it matter now? I mean, what is going to surprise us about the president of the United States at this point? Well, you know, again, that that's that's a really interesting point. And does Russia's does the, does the stuff that Russia is holding over his head is it losing is it losing value with every day? You know, it it, it may well be. I mean, I think they're both playing games, although. You know, it's hard to say. Do we think that Trump is in Russia's pocket? Well, maybe. Maybe he doesn't care about the prostitutes. I mean, they do, you know, they do polling um, on every issue probably every day. And maybe they've seen that the American public has, you know, uh, has a high level of tolerance for it. I mean, who knows? So, you know, like, there's nothing here we don't know. He was elected after the whole whole, whole Billy Bush um, leak tape. Okay, yeah. people knew that he disrespected women. People knew that he would allegedly grope women without their permission. And yet, and yet, they still went into the ballot box and pulled the lever. So that should tell you everything. Well, exactly. Is there anything here? And this was the big story, the Russian prostitute story, and I'll let everyone dig into that more on their own. But this was the big story in all of this. So now that we've got Stormy Daniels, we've got the other one, we've got this. I mean, is there a rock unturned we haven't seen? If You know what? If there was somebody underage, then yeah, that would turn the rock. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I think Scott, you say is this going to be more of the same? I call and I'm not saying that I'm not saying that that's acceptable. No, 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 but, no, no. I'm not saying know. it's acceptable either. But you know, I call all of this sort of death by a thousand cuts. And when you get story after story that is that has sort of a, a similar narrative that um, tells a bit of a different, you know, gives you a different spin on the same story then that starts to accumulate. And, you know, we've seen a few by-elections where unlikely, the unlikeliest of Republican, I mean, Democratic candidates have won. So when it comes time to the midterms in 2018, then we're going to see that have all these narratives, have these stories after story after story, have these started to change the psyche of potential Trump voters. And that's when you'll really see the impact. Uh, how long till we see the Trump Storm, uh, Stormy Daniels movie, says one listener. Isn't that interesting? I'm surprised one isn't being written right as we speak. Alyssa Freeman is with us, PR and pop culture expert principal at Alyssa Freeman PR. Alyssa, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. 
You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've certainly seen uh, everything goes retro, right? As soon as uh, kids embrace and enjoy whatever time they're living in, everybody likes to go back and enjoy sometimes the way we did it in the past. I'm not sure why. Let's use vinyl for an example. Oh, it just sounds warmer. Mm -mm -mm. There's no better sound than a vinyl record. There's no better sound than using technology that's a couple hundred years old and dragging something across a hard surface to produce a sound. That's not warmth, that's distortion. That's turntable rumble. Just my personal opinion. Well, we see the same thing with the flip phone. Kids are buying vinyl now. You know, I, and you know, even my 14-year-old daughter, vinyl, has a turntable. She even went downstairs and got my old record, or you know, milk cartons, milk crates filled with the albums. They're in her, they're in her closet. She got back to vinyl. Well, for a day and a half, anyway. Will we see her hand over her smartphone for a flip phone? It could be a lot cheaper for parenting. Uh, let's bring in Sid Bolton, curator of the Personal Computer Museum, and ask him if the flip phone is, in fact, making a comeback. Is this a novelty or is this a social trend? Sid, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Yeah, no problem. And there's nobody that's more into retro technology than me, of course. Tell everybody about the Computer Museum, Sid. So in Brantford, we have the Personal Computer Museum, which is more than just a computer museum. We're actually a technology museum. So we have things like typewriters and PDAs and, of course, flip phones and old cell phones. So we just recently got a car phone from 1986 that was made by Radio Shack, still in the box, Scott. Wow. So it's a car a car phone. What do you mean? Isn't that, a, well, isn't that a cell phone? Or is this when they actually <laughs> mounted them to the console? Yeah, yeah. back in the day, uh, you would have your, your mobile phone was actually because of the power requirements and everything else. These things weren't really, you know, the batteries weren't light enough to be carried in our pockets. Like, we don't realize how lucky we are. Uh, in the 80s, when we did have cell technology, either the phones were huge or we had to wire them into our cars. And that's really where people were using them. They thought, hey, if I'm, if I'm out and about and I'm driving around, I'll be able to take a phone call. So that was what we had before we had uh, the predecessor to the phone. And then, of course, there was a time, and if you think back to Star Trek and the way the communicator worked, we had this sort of device that flipped open. And uh, a lot of times, you know, art sort of mimics life, and that's when the creators of cell phones came up with this phone that you would actually flip open to use. And it looks like that phone and that style is actually making a comeback is amazing. <laughs> so uh, how do you describe that? Is it novelty? Is it a trend? Is it a backlash to the whole Facebook invading, invading my privacy? I'm tired of people knowing where I am. All I want is this. I mean, is this like vinyl? Yeah, well, it's one of those things where I think uh, some famous people have started doing it sort of as a protest to the fact that, yeah, like we're kind of concerned about our privacy all of a sudden. It seems like we really didn't care about it for so long. And then when we heard enough of these stories of our privacy being breached and things happening to people, uh, you know, you hear about uh, famous movie stars getting their, their phones hacked and nude photos stolen and things like that. And now people are really starting to think that maybe all this impact of all this data and also the other big thing, Scott, is the interruptions. If you think about it, you know, the average person gets so many interruptions every day with constant communications that 
they don't have time to get anything else done. We're constantly responding to people. Yes, we're communicating more, uh, but at what cost? And so people are realizing that they're not as productive as they once were because they're constantly being bombarded by these things. Now, you would think one of the world's you know, richest men would have you know, a diamond-encrusted gold iPhone. But no, Warren Buffett actually has a flip phone. That's all he has. He has a flip phone. So he doesn't even have a smartphone in his pocket. How about discipline? Anyone got any of that? Why do you need a, why do you need a flip phone? How about some good old-fashioned discipline? Put the damn thing down. And can't, well, and can't even the rich, the rich guys to create this stuff do that? Well, the thing is, is these, the, the rich guys are actually fueling studies that actually prey upon people's addictions. And so a lot of these phone companies have data, including Apple. It's well known that Apple has information about what makes these phones and texts and messages and notifications addictive to people. And they're actually, you know, preying upon that to actually make money. So, um, you know, they don't want people to, to use their phones less. Is this any different than the big cigarette scams of the 60s when they were injecting chemicals into them to make sure we smoke more? Is this like the same thing? It, it pretty much is the same thing. I mean, they're basically using consumer trends to be able to sort of maximize profits. And the thing is, Scott, is that, you know, back in the 60s and when we were you know, looking at consumer trends, it's a little bit different than today. We have such access because the trends are all based on digital. It's so much easier to track this information and to then use things like artificial intelligence to actually uh, look at trends. Because, of course, there's so much data to go through that how can you possibly analyze it all, right? And so now we're using artificial intelligence to actually analyze this to see what people are doing in order to make decisions about how devices and products will work in the future. Again, it's all about maximizing profits. So a lot of people are saying, you know what? I don't want any more of this. I'm just going to stick to the basics. If people want to call me and actually talk to me, then I've got a device that they can do that with. So do you think this is a retro novelty, or do you think this is a protest? I think it's more of a protest for people. I do think it will probably be short-lived, but uh, if you look at some of the data of uh, how many phones, I think for Americans there's something like 24 million flip phones. I think I saw a number. What's the uh, demand for these? Are they still making them? They're still making them, yeah. Uh, and in fact, um, I know, for example, LG is one of the companies that still makes a flip phone. And another uh, thing about them, Scott, is that a lot of parents are looking at actually providing their children. And there's sort of there's a movement out there that says, you know, kids that are younger than grade eight. I mean, if you want to give them a phone so that they can communicate in a case of an emergency, that's fine. But we don't want, you know, our kids that are you know, younger than grade eight to actually have a phone that's a smartphone that can do other things like, you know, Facebook and other social media apps. And so giving them uh, a flip phone actually, you know, at least gives them the ability to call home or to get a phone call, receive a phone call so parents can check up on them. So they don't feel completely disconnected from the world, but at the same time, they run a lot less risk of getting into trouble with things like social media apps. How does industry view this? How would industry view these stats that ooh, people are buying flip phones again? How are they going to look at this? Are they going to get well, on board? Are they going to try to stop it? What are they going to do? I think that um, if the trend continues uh, much longer, and, and I don't know that it will, but I think some of the smaller companies are going to take advantage of that. So LG certainly has you know, sold a lot of phones. I think they're going to continue to offer options in that space. Do I think other big companies are going to go on trend? I think it's too small of a market for them to do that. But like a lot of things, you know, 
um, there's enough of a business there for somebody. And if LG can't make it in the bigger space with the bigger players, then why not take a larger piece of a smaller pie? And I think that's, that's what they're going to do. Uh, and I think you will also see some smaller cell phone companies come out with sort of unique products tailored around that. So they have that look and feel of a flip phone, but maybe in actuality they perform some of the things that people still want. Um, so I think you're going to see phones that look retro, that really aren't. So I think that's going to be what the new trend is going to be. It's like one of those old, it's like a radio that looks like an old one from the 1930s. Right, or even those, you know, you talked about your daughter having a turntable. Yeah. Uh, what about the turntables that have USB connections? Exactly. <laughs> they're, they're new, but they're also retro-ish. Uh, flip phone, any more secure, any more safe. Is this a false sense of security? Well, Simply because that, it's just a phone. Yeah, phones that don't have apps on them the same way, uh, phones that just simply are able to But will you get a hybrid of information? Will you get a hybrid, though? Uh, you know, as you mentioned, it won't be the old phone, it won't be the new phone, but something in between that kind of does both, but nobody really knows. Any device that's running uh, a sort of a mainstream operating system like Android is still going to be uh, at risk for any of the types of security breaches that we've seen on other devices. If it does run a proprietary operating system, it is likely to not have the same risks just because of a smaller base. People are less likely to bother trying to hack into it. And also, if the phone only has your contacts and some, maybe some simple pictures and text messages, it may not be worth bothering for people to get into. But then you're going to have the downside of not being able to do your banking or some of the other stuff that might actually be useful, but is also a big security risk. So there's pluses and minuses going both ways. But I think most of these phones, certainly the ones I've seen from LG, use their own proprietary operating system. So in a way, just because of the nature of their design, they're more secure. Um, obviously we're in the era of the selfie, uh, these cameras are, sorry, these phones attractive, not only for their ability to be exactly like an old PC used to be, they can also take pictures. Where's the relation there? A flip phone. Uh, is this the end of the selfie? Uh, I think those phones, you know, they do, uh, still take pictures. Of course. It's a pretty uh, rough picture. Pretty. Yeah. And I mean, that's what I think you're going to see is that if the trend keeps up, the uh, quality of the cameras is going to be increased just because uh, when it comes to electronics, sort of the lowest, you know, common denominator and sort of the cheapest uh, products that you can buy tend to be much better than they ever were during the era of the flip phone. So you're going to find that a newer manufactured flip phone is going to have a better camera than the old ones did just because that's the lowest common denominator that they can So is that life. is that a sweet spot for the industry or for consumers? You know, people don't want a, 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 a smartphone and the cost associated around that. However, do want the communication and still the whole picture thing is a huge part of of, of people's lives, especially for the younger generation. Is that the answer, some sort of hybrid model? I think so, but I think for a lot of people, they're going to get frustrated after a while of using it, trying to remember how to use Do you remember T9 and trying to use the... And plus, you're going to have more than one device, right? Possibly, yeah, because a lot of people are going to want to have that other device with them. But then maybe people will, maybe we'll see an increase in things like tablets and other larger devices that can communicate on the cellular network. We may see the uh, the adoption of those devices go up so that someone has a phone for their, their basic communication and then a tablet that they can use to do their banking and their browsing and that kind of stuff that they can take with them on the go and not necessarily make a phone call with. And the thing is, is it will provide less distraction because 
they'd have to take that tablet, say, out of a bag or out of, you know, out of their car or something like that, whereas the phone can be on them at all times. And I think those two devices maybe, I mean, we've, we've always seen over the years a bunch of convergence to a single device, but I think decoupling the devices out into two may be where we end up again, at least for a while. I think right now this current flip phone thing, it's a trend, uh, it's a social thing. It's like, oh, cool, look, I'm going retro, I'm going back to simplicity. I'm not sure, Scott, that it's going to last, but um, when it's, you see the celebrities do it, you know, of course there'll be a certain amount of people that follow them. Uh, somebody just emailed me and made a point that their phone's for seniors. That's another big market here. Uh, how long are are young people going to be uh, wanting to associate themselves with phones like their grandparents would have? <laughs> well, I mean, there are phones that are specifically designed with bigger numbers and the simplicity that maybe seniors would use. Again, a lot of times uh, we see seniors have these phones just in their cars for emergencies, and they're simply used only, you know, to call 911 if there's a problem in the car or whatever. But I don't think that that's too big of a deal. I mean, kids can... Uh, differentiate themselves from, say, senior devices by doing things like skins and other cool things that seniors aren't going to bother with. So I think that if, you know, the young kids want to have their phones look styling, they'll still find a way to do it that won't make them feel like they're using grandma's phone all the time. Rotary dial, can it be far away, Sid? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Is what? it coming back? I saw something on the weekend that actually uh, a friend of mine who's a venture capitalist, he actually has a uh, yeah, it's not a rotary phone, but it is a touch dial phone, an old style phone, hooked up to his treadmill while he's working, and he's got a device that you can get that actually allows you to plug your analog phone into a digital network. And so, uh, you know what? A lot of this retro stuff comes back. It's like fashion, Scott. It really is. It comes back in waves, and I think we will see a little bit more of that come back in style, at least for a little while. How much of this, uh, you know, are we talking more about this because of the Facebook factor, because what we've, you know, heard there and stealing of information, it, does that heighten this sort of thing? It definitely does. I think people have this time around. I mean, there's been, let's face it, there's been data breaches before. There's been credit card breaches before. We've talked about many of these things over the years. But this recent thing that happened with Facebook, and I think part of it has to do with the association with Mr. Trump has has certainly heightened uh, people's interest in this and what's happened and how that's related to politics and how people are suddenly realizing that, you know, this type of uh, information uh, exposure can actually have a real impact on the world. And I think a lot of people have stepped back and said, you know, did Trump win because of this? Did this really happen? And I think, uh, you know, at one point in time, people would say, oh, it's just a conspiracy theory or whatever. But now it's gotten to the point where it's really making us think like, wow, what can happen in our world? Things we've seen in movies that we all think is just science fiction this stuff could actually happen. And now I think more than ever, people are realizing it could be true. And that's making people step back and maybe take some different actions. Is this largely celebrity driven or is this something more organic? I mean, because celebrities, of course, uh, especially if you're really famous, you don't need social media anymore. It's probably more of a pain in the ass than it is anything. Uh, <laughs> well, is, it, is, there an un, is it more celebrity driven or are there young people out there that are jumping on this? I think what's happening, and certainly with the, the flip phones, there's a, a certain amount of 
things that celebrities cause us to sort of say, hey, this is cool, and they become on trend for a while. But those things don't tend to stick too long. They sort of become the thing that happens initially, and people go, oh. Or they bring awareness. That's one of the things that celebrities are well-known for doing is bringing awareness to certain issues. And this is a good way for people with celebrity to use their celebrity to say, you know what, I'm doing this because I'm worried about my privacy and I want to go back uh, to a simpler thing. And rather than the privacy thing, personally, I think they should you know, focus on saying, you know what, maybe we don't need as many interruptions in our lives that these phones bring to us. Because for a lot of people, it's, uh, you know, you see people walking around looking at their phones and not talking to each other. And I think we need to change that in our society. So there's a pile of people standing there all looking down at their shoes with their devices in their hand, their thumbs mm-hmm. going so fast you can barely see them. So then somebody with a flip phone walks right into the middle of the circle and flips it up. What do you think? It, what do you think the reaction is going to be? What is that? <laughs> exactly. Where did you get that? What What planet are you from? Yeah, exactly. Sid Bolton is with his curator, personal computer museum up in Brantford. Sid, thanks for the time as always. Much appreciated. No problem, Scott. The Scott Thompson Show weekdays from noon to three on AM nine hundred CHML.